Welcome to Tales from the Shadows. No. Welcome to Sounds from the Shadows, Very the good. podcast where the Shadow Girls, we get together, we talk about stories, we tell stories, fairy tales, folk tales, things that have caught our interest. I am Emily Collins. I am Georgia Dorley. And in the background are, of course, the Snoring Doggos. And we're talking about something very interesting today, Georgia. Uh... Yeah, so a little while ago, I think possibly when we were looking at Cinderella stories, I came across an article in The Guardian. I'm sorry, this is like the one newspaper I read, so yes, I quote <laughs> these a lot. That was, um, well, the, the headline is, The first fairy tales were feminist critiques of patriarchy. We need to revive their legacy. And it's essentially about these women in the sort of, I, I always get up the centuries muddled up, the sort of 1600s, which it's is the, the 17th, 17th century. century? Um, uh, the Sun King. Louis the, Louis the 14th. Uh, so um, Versailles. I knew it was one of the Louis. Fancy hair. Fancy hair. Fancy hair, Louis. Uh, one of the fancy hair Louis. Um, but it's like these women um, in uh, the, the court who uh, came to be known as sort of the contus, I think. Please forgive any of our pronunciations. Yeah, I don't, I don't speak French. You've already heard me butcher French <laughs> pronunciation before. I have studied French, but I still get confused. And, you know, it's December, it's silly season. Things are busy. Mm. So sorry, these, um, these women, so they lived obviously in quite a sort of conservative time in France. I don't know a huge Even amount though of there was a huge amount of like scandalous stuff going on like at the, the, at the court but uh, you still had to be reasonably conservative yeah and you know women particularly when it came to the aristocracy and the upper echelons of society mm. were often married off only aged sort of 15 yeah. or so you're old enough to technically conceive a child grand off you go um married a man twice three times your age yeah they didn't have a huge amount of agency in their lives and so we got this interesting sort of quiet revolution of mm. fairy tales and stories written by these women who sort of, I guess, sort of, um, what's the word? They they um, exercised a certain amount of agency in these sort of almost make-believe world, worlds. Mm. And many of them, particularly I was looking at, um, now she's a very long name because she was an important lady. I'm just going to call her Baroness Dolnoy, which is D apostrophe A-U-L-N-O-Y. So I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, Baroness Marie Catherine Dolnoy. She, yeah, she she just wrote some wonderful stories where she had quite a sort of sardonic sense of humour often with mm. them, where she'd sort of critique society yeah. in the way that it was. Um, I mean, for us reading these stories now, they don't seem... I mean, I was looking at one called Belle Belle, and for me, it's, it's not particularly surprising reading as someone in the 21st century... We're still in the 21st century. We're not in the 22nd yet. No, we're still in the 21st. Thank goodness. Um, (laughs) There isn't anything particularly groundbreaking about Mm. it from my perspective, but at the time, quite extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah. hugely. And they they were started up as spaces where women could speak because there was Mm. a thing of women, they weren't allowed into the academy. They were largely expected to be seen, not heard. And so these women all, unfortunately, it was, there was a huge class thing. Mm. Uh, They were all very privileged women who were able to do this, but they set up their own salons, salons yeah. and their own academies. And the first was set up by, again, I'm going to butcher her name because it's a long French name, <laughs> Catherine de Vicon de Savine, Marquis de Ramboulet. Wow. Sorry, again, to any French speakers. Uh, but she's seen as having set up the first of these salles or roulets, Again, mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing this terribly. In and had her blue bedchamber. And the thing that I found really interesting was this, was the way that she modelled it, because she actually modelled it uh, um, in the style of like a lying in, because 
she would be lying there in her blue bed chamber in her her show bed, her bed that was on show, not her, mm. the bed that she slept in. And then she would have her friends, her female friends, all arranged around her and they'd all be talking. But this was very much modelled after the peasant tradition of when a woman was giving birth. I was thinking that. You know, her female friends, her female relatives would come in. And that's actually where we get the word gossip from. Yeah. Because oh. the word gossip, it came from um, good wife, who were sort of like the godmothers. And the, oh. when you were in your lying, like, you'd, you'd be there sort of from as soon as you felt the labour coming to a few days after, sort mm. of recuperating. And all of the women you knew in your life would come around and they'd chat, they'd exchange gossip. And it was a strange thing because it was seen as, uh, before like doctors started getting their hands on it, but that this was something that it was, it was almost an ill omen for a man to even be near. Mm. So this was a space where women could talk freely, could exchange ideas. And there was a lot of passing on of like, well, we get the word old wives tales. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and I've got a quote here somewhere if I can find it. I highlighted it. A lot of the sort of things that do reference them, there's a book called The Gospel of the Distaffs from 1475, uh, which records or claims to record, because it was written by a man who probably wasn't present, <laughs> conversations held at such a meeting at the Lying In and talking about the things they were viewed and how they were viewed by the dominant society, which was... At best, a chance for old women to get together and gossip amongst themselves and spread old wives' tales to younger women. And at worst, subversive meetings that were dangerous, even heretical views, where they would discuss and plant the dark arts, do things such as fortune-telling, making love potions, methods of conception and preventing it. (laughs) So they were sort of viewed as this, all these women getting together and talking, it was sort of thing as... What are they up to? Hmm. What are they talking about? So viewed with a bit of suspicion. So interesting that then she took this model of, well, I'm going to be in my bed. This sort of formal informality. Yeah. Because, well, I'm in bed and there was this thing of disabier, looking intentionally, oh, I just woke up like this. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I haven't been spending three hours doing my hair and makeup. Wonderful. And I found it just really interesting that she modelled her salons on this, this peasant tradition and on this sort of this woman's only space. Yeah. And they, they played word games. They, they chatted. And I've got a quote from Marina Warner from, from Beast to Blonde, which if you haven't read it and you're looking for something for Christmas, Marina Warner from Beast to Blonde, brilliant book. Can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, very easy to read. I'm writing uh, that down. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she describes a hostess. She made many innovations of the startling kind, which themselves developed in form and style in the custom of a lying in. She invited guests around her in her blue bedchamber and she refashioned the interior of the Hotel de Rambleau, sorry, her fancy house, (laughs) uh, so that they approached the inner sanctum through sweeping enfields of doors until they at last reached the hostess. In this alternative court, the lady in the lying bed on her showbed, waiting in her alcove, was amused and provoked, told stories real and imaginary, exchanged news, argued, theorised, speculated and plopped. But that's how Marina Warner <laughs> describes it. Um, so that's what it's like. And Jack Sipes has basically how the, they became fairy tales. Mm. Uh, the literary fairy tale first developed in the salon by aristocratic women as a type of parlour game in the middle of the 17th century. It was within these aristocratic salons women were able to dominate, sorry, women were able to demonstrate their intelligence and education through types of conversational games. 
In fact, the linguistic games often served as models for literary genres such as the occasional lyric or serial novel. Both men and women participated in these games and were constantly challenging each other to invent new ones or refine the games. Such challenges led women in particular to improve the quality of their dialogue, remarks, ideas, morals, manners and education at the time, and at times to oppose the male standard that had been set to govern their lives. Very good. Because so that yeah. is from Jack Sipes, The Origins of Fairy Tales, in Fairy Tale as Myth slash Myth as Fairy Tale. Again, another brilliant book. Sorry, I'm just going to write all this stuff down too. <laughs> I've, yep. I've got the next <laughs> I, can, I can lend them to you. Thank you. Exciting. Um, I think it's so good Christmas presents. A lot of time it would be like someone would say, mm. oh, I heard an interesting story. Mm. And they would tell their story and everyone would sort of you know, politely applaud. And then someone would say, oh, that reminds me of another tale. Mm. And then they would do it. And it wasn't, you weren't in direct competition with each other, but it was sort of you were given a theme by your hostess and it was a chance to show off how how naturally witty and elegant you were, but you'd actually practiced this beforehand. Yeah. Interesting sort of communal sort of yeah. gathering style and that thing of, because also I, I presume, like, I don't know what education-wise, um, how society really would have worked back then. But, a lot of private tutors and things. Yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah, how it compared between essentially little boys and little girls and how they would be treated differently. I'd say it varied from family to family. But, I mean, <laughs> there is that thing of, like, men and women are just as intelligent as each mm. other. And so, I mean, God, it must have been so frustrating for some women to be expected to just go along with the, I'm just interested in my presentation and getting the right husband and... You know, being being an accessory for my husband and for my family's standing. And to have a space where it's just them, so that it's interesting that you said dominate instead of demonstrate, Mm. and I was sort of going, hmm. Um, (laughs) Because, yeah, it must have been a completely different dynamic. It was, Um, and that was what the the literary salons developed out of these things. mm. And I can't remember who said it, but that the the literary salons were as important to the Enlightenment as the coffee houses. Ah. But the difference was a coffee house was a public space that had a semblance of being private mm. whereas the literary salon because it was in someone's house in their private chambers it had it was private but it had the semblance of being public unlike since the greeks there was this whole thing of in society women should not speak in public yeah like the public is for the men to go and go to the forum and do things and the women should stay at home and spin mm. and i can do a whole other thing about the symbolism of spinning but I, i'll I'll not go down that rabbit hole yet. Have you done a podcast on that? No, I really want to. <gasps> okay, that's next. That's that definitely needs to be next. Yeah. Spinning. <laughs> Spinning. So they were they were playing these games and mm. they they came up with these these wonderful stories, and sometimes they would be based on stories that came from the oral tradition, because you know stories they had heard from their nursemaids, their servants, stories they remembered as children, uh, but then they would elaborate on them, and like you you read one of some of the stories and they get yeah. They build them up and they get so long and complicated. Yes, that's definitely what I found from um, Belle Belle or what is it? Chevalier, the Chevalier Fortune, um, which was uh, Countess Dolnoy's story or one of them. She had a lot. And yes, they do. So they, they, I know from her stories were the ones I was mainly looking at. They're, they're pretty much novellas. Mm, they're long. They are. They're yeah. novels. So don't worry, I won't tell this entire story, but excuse me. Um, but they're they're so embellished, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of dialogue in them. There's a lot of character building, which you can imagine if you're speaking this to someone, having a lot of dialogue mm. 
how are you going to develop it, it plays into the the fun of it and the presentation the performance of it because mm. if you're i'm just i'm really excited about that idea of the salon like oh i've got an idea let's work on this together yeah it's, yeah it was like yeah. workshopping an idea exactly god we're great we are women are wonderful we are. well actually <laughs> um it's slightly later but there's a brilliant french film called oh why can't i remember the name it's not revenge describe it it's a it's a french costume set in the end of the court of louis the 16th the one who got his head cut off mm. and it's a a young man he's a minor noble he comes to court because he wants to drain a swamp on his land because it's mm. spreading malaria but he can't drain it unless he gets permission from the king oh. so he basically to get to the king to get permission ridicule that's the name of it to get to the king to get permission to drain a swamp he basically has to get in with the courtiers who are close to the oh, king and sort of go through this this whole thing and be charming and be witty in the right way and be sort of two-faced nasty to the right people. Mm. And he, he's quite a clever young man, but he's, he's from the sticks, so he doesn't know a lot of the things. But one of the guys sort of t- takes him under his wing. Uh. And he's, it's, it's, it's very funny. He's a, he's a man who just... He's, he says, I'm not very clever myself, but I love to record the things clever men say. Oh. So he's always carrying around a notebook and if someone says something particularly witty, he writes it down. Oh, that's so sweet. But they're at this... Salon being held by one of his countesses mm. who's very like if if you can get her to be your ally you've got it made. Wow. But she's sort of she's not sure if he wants this guy or not. She's playing with him, mm. but they're playing a game where basically you have to draw a piece of paper out of a hat and then compose uh, a poem. Oh. On them, and she one of her favorites. She's sort of sitting next to him. She's cockheckishly playing with him and the fan, but they've prepared something in advance. Um. And so he's, well, instead of drawing directly out of the bowl, he's taking the paper out of her fan and then pretending to draw it out of the bowl. Very good. And it's just how important this became mm. and how you could sort of snub and praise and all the right things. And how cheating and yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, like, if you get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, the salon thing, the blue bedchamber started so as not to be full of this, all this etiquette of the yeah. court. And then, it, of course, it developed its own etiquette and rules. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's intriguing. I love, I really want to watch that film now yeah. as well. It's in um, French, but the subtitles. <laughs> and the costumes are beautiful. That's what I'm thinking. I'm just imagining oh, really. Gorgeous. Mm, we need to do a film night. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, with, with this story, it's, it's fascinating because... Um, it's, I mean, it's very, it's very Twelfth Night. Mm. So I, 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 I love Twelfth Night. Um, I really, as a kid, I really enjoyed any stories where, I mean, like Mulan was my favourite film. Mm. I loved when, you know, essentially a girl, so to speak, if we're going to do this sort of very binary gender thing in terms of these stories. Um, Which is the unfortunate thing about these women. They, they were writing at a time when you didn't even question the idea of there being a binary gender. Yeah, it was, that was just standard. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but yeah, I, as a kid, I certainly really enjoyed um, when, yeah, essentially a girl would come up against something that she needed to overcome and she had to dress up as a boy and convince people that she was a boy. The to moment get it when done. She, she draws her father's sword and cuts off her hair. Oh my God. It's just, you know that music that's like, I think I've done this before in the podcast, so I need to stop. But <laughs> powerful, man. Um, but yes, so with this story, excuse me, guys, I had a bit of a cold recently. Um, Belle Belle, or the Chevalier Fortuné. Um, it's um, yeah, it's a long one. So I'll just sort of like throw in some quotes and describe what's happening. Essentially, it starts once upon a time. There was a very good, very mild, and very powerful king, but the emperor Matapa, his neighbor, was still more powerful than he. They had waged great wars with one another. 
but the emperor had besieged the king's capital city and took it, took away all of his riches. Um, the king had scarcely time to save himself with the dowager queen, his sister. Mm-hmm. So you have the setup of this, this very young king. His dowager sister, she was widowed very young. Um, the two of them are sort of ruling. <laughs> Their combination of characters becomes very interesting later. Um, now this king, obviously he's not too happy about mm-hmm. this situation. He wants to get his, uh, his wealth back. His throne back. Exactly. And he was, I love this, was not inclined to sit down patiently under his misfortunes. So essentially he, um, similar to the Mulan sort of situation, sends out what's rema- what is remaining of his troops to go across the country, gather as many men as possible. And um, each family has to, to, to give up a, a, son. Um, a son or a father, a man of any yeah. kind, or they'll be heavily fined. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a punishment for it. So there lived on the frontier an old nobleman. 80 years of age, a clever and prudent man, but so ill-used by fortune that after having possessed much wealth, he found himself reduced almost to poverty, which he would have endured patiently had it not been shared with him by his three beautiful daughters. They're always beautiful daughters. And always three of them. Yeah, interesting. They were so sensible that they never murmured at their misfortunes because they knew that it would upset him. So when the king's proclamation reaches them, obviously this poor man is sort of going, oh no, I don't have any sons, I can't afford a fine. What on earth do I do? The eldest daughter goes to him and she says, Sire, I am come to entreat you to permit me to set out for the army. I am of good height and strong enough. I will dress myself in male attire and pass for your son. If I do not perform any heroic actions, I shall at least save you the journey or the tax. And that is a great deal in our situation. And so he reluctantly lets her go. Um, but as she's making the journey, she takes the best horse uh-huh. from their land. She's going through a field or a meadow and she sees a shepherdess um, in a ditch with some water oh. trying to wrestle out her sheep oh. which is, or a little lamb that is drowning. And the shepherdess sort of says, oh, please, could you, could you help me? Um, and <laughs> the oldest daughter um, essentially is just a bit like, oh, um, I'm busy and keeps I've, going. I've, I've got a... I've got a war to get to. Essentially, yeah. She's just a bit like, how on earth did you manage that? Oh, it's not worth my time. And so interestingly, the old shepherdess, so the shepherdess immediately cried out as the sister goes off, goodbye, disguised beauty. (laughs) And the old sister sort of goes, oh no, what gave me away? So she panics and she goes, and so the second daughter essentially goes to the father again and is Mm. like, okay, well, I'll give it a go. You know, I'm going to speed through this as much as I can. Um, So she takes the second best horse and, uh, you know, the father gets some sort of proper good clothes for her as well so she can present herself as himself. Good socks, yeah. (laughs) And so she goes off um, and she encounters the same shepherdess in the field, still trying to get her lamps out of the water. And... uh, so the how is it shepherdess the sister says that you take so little care of your sheep that you let them fall into the water um and she rides off and again the shepherdess goes goodbye disguised beauty (laughs) um and so she panics she heads home so the poor you know the last daughter obviously at this stage is sort of going well you know what maybe i'll be able to do it third time a charm exactly um so at last the youngest daughter youngest girl begged him in the most urgent manner the father to grant her the same favor he'd Uh, had her sisters perhaps said she it is presumption in me to hope i shall succeed better than they have but notwithstanding i should like to try i am taller than they are you know that i go every day hunting this exercise qualifies one in some degree for war and the great desire i feel to relieve you in your distress inspires me with extraordinary courage the count loved her much better than he did either of her sisters that happens a lot 
as well. She was so attentive to him that he looked upon her as his chief consolation. So he found it a bit difficult saying yes. Um, But he gave in. And so she made herself a very plain suit of clothes for those of her sisters cost so much. And the poor old count's finances could not allow much more expense. She was compelled also to take a very bad horse. Oh, poor horse. Because her two sisters had nearly crippled the two others. But this... Uh, all this did not discourage her. Right, so she heads off and she encounters the same shepherdess. As I do, she's still with the sheep. Um, and she still hasn't recovered her sheep. And so Belle Belle, the name of this youngest daughter, lots of repetition of stories, she stops and she says, what are you doing there, shepherdess? And the shepherdess says, I cannot do anything more, my lord, replied the shepherdess. Ever since daylight, I have been trying to save this sheep. My labour has been in vain. I am so weary. I can scarcely breathe. There is hardly a day that some new misfortune does not happen to me, and I find no one to assist me. And so Belle Belle says, I am truly sorry for you. And to prove that I pity you, I will help you. Which I think is a bit patronising. A little bit. She does. Well, she is Um, pretending to be a man. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Um, A bit of patronising chivalry in there. Yes, Actually, she's doing a very good job of it. Um, so she she jumps through the hedge, gets a few scratches on her way, plunges into the ditch, and um, she she gets she gets the sheep out and she helps her. And so the shepherdess sort of says, "Oh, you have not obliged an ungrateful person." Surprise, surprise! She's essentially a fairy godmother. So she's like a fairy queen. And so she essentially is just she's really impressed by Belle Belle, and she's I'm going to reward you. So Belle Belle gets some pretty neat stuff. Um, she gets um, a beautiful new horse Fabulous. called Comrade. <laughs> I love it. Um, who can sort of see into the future and the past mm. and can see everything that's happening. He's a very wise horse. I really like that she should see the means of production. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> um, and so she also gets a faithful comrade be better harnessed than the Emperor's Matapa, Matapa's best horse, I think is the sort of gift that uh, the fairy sort of bestows upon Comrade. Comrade. Um, and he gets a beautiful saddle cloth of green velvet embroidered with pearls and rubies, a saddle to match and a bridle of pearls with a bit with a bit and studs of gold. Like, wow. And so Belle Belle also gets done up in some magnificent clothing. Um, and she's also given, um, she's also given a, this, this, what is it, a turkey leather, a, a, a large trunk covered with turkey leather um, mm. that's sort of embroidered and inside of it, it's like one of those sort of Mary Poppins bag. Oh, right. And it's it's just filled goes on. with beautiful outfits and gold and jewels. And there's some very interesting stuff about how you summon that, but we'll mm. skip over. And the fairy sort of says, well, you must call yourself, I think, Chevalier Fortuné, which is sort of like fortunate Chevalier, because um, Belle Belle is not a boy's name. <laughs> <laughs> and so Boys she... can be pretty. <laughs> yes. According to this story, I'm sorry, I think Belle Belle is a great boy's name. Um, or anyone's name. Um, so she is overwhelmed by this lovely fairy godmother, as you would be, and she heads off and she finds a populous city and she finds that, or I suppose at this point actually it's interesting in the story, Dolnoy starts referring to um, the main character as he Ooh. and as Chevalier Fortuné um, to, to roll along with the story. Um, and so he arrives in the city and um, finds that everyone thinks, 
wow, the Chevalier, how gracefully he manages that superb horse and how handsome he is. The whole city is just like, wow. There's interesting stuff in, in that when she, she actually, um, he sends back um, golden jewels to her family from the trunk. But anytime her, his sisters touch them, they turn to glass. Oh. Um, or you know, you know, wood or something. Mm. But the father is able, able to, to touch them, yeah. and so that's a spiteful fairy. Yeah, I know. I kind of like her though. She's yeah. Gutsy. Um, she doesn't go pecking out their eyes mm. or anything. And so uh, she, she uh, he moves on then because he hasn't reached the city with the mm. king in it yet. And then there's this whole long bit where the horse guides um, Fortune through this wood, sort of going. There's a gifted person there. And he explains gifted means someone who has been given something by the fairies, mm. so something magical. Mm. And so Fortuna gathers this, this um, what do you call it, sort of, um, you know, Robin Hood and his band of merry men. He's sort of got this band of interesting, <laughs> talented individuals who um, have, you know, things like um, there's a woodcutter called Strongback, and he has extraordinary back. strength. He cuts all the wood, and then, you know, there's a, there's a fella who can, who can just drink, like, three lakes all in one go. Um, they all very, have very unique talents, which very may come in relevant later in the plot. Well, you won't know until later. Um, someone who can eat a whole load of things, someone who can blow a little bit, and it's like gale force winds, and all of these things. I won't go through all of them, um, because there's so many. Yep, Tipler, he's the one who can drink all of them. Absolutely fascinating. So he gathers them and sort of says, look, don't tell anyone about your secret Mm. powers. Come with me. So I'm going to skip ahead. And This is an early version of the Avengers. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Like it's, oh, it's it's intriguing. There's like, because it is such um, an epic, Mm. essentially, when it comes to fairy tales. And so I'll try and paraphrase a bit more. Virginia gets to the, the main city with his band of merry men. Or... <laughs> yeah, interesting men. Um, and so he causes a stir because he's wonderfully dressed and he's so, the way he speaks, he's such charm and so sensible, so level headed. Everyone falls in love with him, platonically and romantically. The women of the city and the court are absolutely swooning. The king decides this th- that he seems like a really great guy. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be helping him out with lots of things. He takes a liking to him. And the, the king's sister, the Dowager Queen, the Dowager Queen falls head over heels. And it's, um, man, like so much of the story is essentially, because um, he obviously then Fortune falls falling. in love with the, the king, king and is very, very sort of like aware that this is happening. You know, she, she sort of says to herself, well, I cannot deny my sex, but, you know, gets on with things as, as Fortune. Um, as I am man, my state is desperate for my, for master's, my master's love. love. As I, I am woman, oh, alas, the day. What a thriftless sigh shall poor Olivia breathe. breathe. Oh, it's such a great speech. Yeah, essentially, it's just Twelfth Night. But Olivia, or the Dowager Queen, oh man, she's sneaky. She's oh. real sneaky. Yeah. So she she sort of gets her, um, her handmaiden um, or servant to keep trying to tell the chevalier her feelings but the the, the handmaid or the servant she um she keeps going and, and speaking with the chevalier and ending up actually because she's head over heels for him as well just complaining about the queen and how miserable she is and how she's so mean to all of her stuff and so the queen starts getting really frustrated that like you know it's, it's not working it's not working out and eventually even sort of starts tr- trying to talk to the chevalier in person and it's just sort of going you know, he obviously is very clearly sort of saying, you know, just letting down gently yeah. and just being like, I'm not going to go into that bit of conversation, gently pushing away. But I'm not in a position to be, you know, 
yeah. looking for a relationship. You know, right. I, I, I might go off and die in a war. Busy saving the world. Yeah. Um, and so there's even a conversation where I think he sort of said, look, I've, 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 I've never even been in love. And she's sort of going, what? Really? Oh. Um, but, let me um, teach you the ways. Let me show you. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite, she, she gets quite sneaky. And I think it's, it's interesting because it is, you know, she's a very unlikable character. Mm. But it's interesting that I think she sort of details that thing of, you know, when you kind of fancy someone and they haven't exactly said no and you're sort of going, oh, maybe, you yeah. know, is it? You, you and want them to be saying, you, yeah. you want to interpret what they're saying as maybe. And you can end up sort of projecting. Yeah. Now, that's totally human and we will do yeah. that. But uh, Dairy Queen goes a bit far. Oh. Um, so she starts getting too frustrated and she does the thing of the sort of, well, you know, if, if he doesn't want me, then I'm going to ruin him. So she goes to the king and sort of says... You know that dragon that's <laughs> that's uh, tearing up our, our country that you really need to get rid of. Um, so it's funny because so the emperor invading and a dragon. Dragon, yeah, it's mad. Um, and uh, so she sort of said, "Actually, that lovely chevalier, uh, he was just entreating me to ask you to give him permission to go off and fight it on his own." And the king is like, "Oh, what? Well, that's oh, he's so wonderful, isn't he? You know, I I wouldn't. I mean." I don't know how I feel because I, you know, I don't really want to lose him. I mean, young man, you know, his career ahead of him, and the the queen essentially does that thing where it sort of says, you know, oh no, but if you were to turn him down, he'd just pine until he died. So you know, he's going to die either way. So do it. So the king has the queen there and beckons the chevalier over and says, I will give you permission. Then the chevalier is like, oh, okay, oh. right, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. I can't do anything. Oh. So he heads off with his, his band of merry men. And um, long story short, they defeat the dragon. Um, choosing their unique superpower at just yes. the right moment. Lots of useful things there. And um, they oh, bring... Oh no, there's a lake. If only we had someone who could drink water. <laughs> oh, wait, we do. Um, let me just skip through all of this. Yeah, when she's asking about the love thing, the queen sort of says, you love nothing then, added she, with a vehemence. No, madam, said he. I have not a heart of so gallant a character. I am a kind of misanthrope who loves his liberty and who would not lose it all for, lose it for all the world and you're sort of going come on hon he's not come on but she doesn't um so let's see dragon 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 when he gets back he um he he lets the the king actually do the do killing the blow the like, he's definitely a bit the dragon. of the king sort of seeing the chevalier come back and being overwhelmed really happy you know doesn't go into the sort of uncomfortable feelings that we sometimes get with Twelfth Night but uh, you can tell um, and um, so then and it was interesting actually before he headed off to, to get the dragon Fortuna actually it was sweet the king says um, is this the dragon one I think it is before he headed off um, he says I, I, I sort of says can I be bold enough Fortuna said to ask for your portrait of the king she takes a little picture with him and it's real cute and the queen was aggrieved was grieved afresh that he had not made the same request of her there's just so much politicking and so he then um the, the queen oh boy she she does make another attempt after fortuna gets back and there, there's some interesting dialogue there that i won't go go into too much um but there's there's some very sort of like it's interesting with their dialogue considering that they are both women mm-hmm. they're from very different backgrounds but they're, they're sort of wordplay and there's very sort of tiptoeing around and sort of saying things but not saying things and sort of intimating mm-hmm. things. And it's very, 
it's very politicsy. So yeah. you can tell that the woman writing this was involved in the court. Um, and I think on a slower read, I'd take a bit more from that. But it's worth it's worth going over. Um, and so now she's she's rebuffed again, and she loses it. So she decides she's going to do this she essentially goes to the king again and says well actually the chevalier he just wants to go off and he wants to take on the emperor um on his own without an army he can do that uh yep and he'll pine to death if you refuse him poor chevaliers beckoned over what (laughs) but of course again with the king so same thing he goes off to the emperor turns up with his seven men I can't remember the emperor just laughs at him he's like I'm sorry what and then the emperor sets tasks and sort of says yeah sure I'll give the stuff back if you can find me a man who can eat all the bread in the city in one sitting in the morning and they're just very convenient Mm. very convenient now the last task is actually um that there's a very fast runner as part of the group who has to outrun man I tried to make this short but it's still really long he says you must outrun my daughter um the emperor's emperor's uh daughter is a very good sprinter apparently um but she's sneaky oh. she um she gives a drink to the fella who's meant to um. yeah and now i don't know if she intended this actually it could have just been i think it was a shot of some alcohol but he wasn't used to that kind of alcohol mm. from that region knocks him out he falls asleep she takes off um so there's an interesting bit about um them sort of using their superpowers to wake him up and it ends up being an arrow through the ear jolts him away he runs he beats her just with the arrow still sticking out of his ear <laughs> as he arrives on the finishing line anyway Fortune brings all this stuff back. And of course, the, the king is, you know, and he's the hero. You know, he's, he's Overjoyed. rebuilt this kingdom. Um, and so, skip through Emperor. Emperor. Yes, uh, there's a bit of a squabble actually about um, the, uh, the treasures they're bringing back because all the men are sort of going, I did a lot of work there, I deserve it. And um, Fortune sort of, you know, gives a good speech about how we should leave this to the king to decide because he's a noble man and, you know, he speaks... And divine right of kings and yes. so on. And the king might read this, we'd better throw in some compliments just in case. Fortune is just so diplomatic in everything that he says. I think that's sort of like, that thing of like being an intuitive woman but also like you know dabbling in the politics thing and i think he she just strikes a really good balance um do to do to do oh yep so the queen tries to ruin him again <laughs> no this time she decides to get fortune to her private chamber to marry him that evening whether he and wants to or not whether he wants to or not but again it's a rebuff it's a look we don't want to go into this and i'm just gonna slowly try to remove myself yeah, I think it says, after the Queen had vainly endeavoured to remove the obstacles that had appeared to alarm him, she all at once assumed the voice and countenance of a fury. This is interesting stuff. She flew into the most violent passion. She threatened him with a thousand punishments. She loaded him with abuse. She fought and scratched him. And then, turning her rage upon herself, she tore her hair, made her face and throat bleed, rent her veil and her lace, then crying out, Help! Guards! Help! called them into a chamber and commanded them to fling that wretch into some dungeon and ran herself to the king to demand reparation for the violence of that young monster. She spins a story that he has attacked. And so the king, you know, he's not in a position... He's he's shocked by this because it doesn't... And he sort of knows that his sister can be quite, you know... But, you know, also he wants to believe believe the victim. Yeah, um, because at the end of the day, like... Sorry, covering my mouth, but... um, I think um, he is the king and this is his kingdom. He has a responsibility to his people. Um, so I would hope that it was coming from that place of like, you believe the victim. Now, 
different times. Mm. So there's a lot of problematic stuff I find around that little event. Yeah. Um, the king is quite like he, he is. It's interesting his torn feelings because he says um, to himself, "But alas, upon whom was this vengeance too light? Upon a gentleman who had exposed himself to so many perils in his service, uh, to whom he was indebted for peace." and all his treasures, and for whom he had a particular affection. He would have given half his life to have saved his dear favourite. He represented to the Queen how useful he had been to him, the services he had rendered to the kingdom, his youth, and everything that might induce her to pardon him. Because I think he was putting pressure on being like, are you sure that you're not making this up before I do this? Mm. Um, She would not hear of it. She demanded his death. The King, finding he could not possibly avoid having him tried, appointed the mildest and most tender-hearted judges in the hopes they would visit the offence as light as possible. But of course, the judge is like, you know, it's a pretty yeah. serious offence. I know that he should have said that he was really good at swimming. That he had a very promising sports career in front of him. <laughs> would have been sorted. Oh no, so problematic. <laughs> um, his sentence was that he should be stabbed three times to the heart with a poniard. Something stickier, I'd say. Um, because it was his heart that was guilty. Ooh. The king trembled at this sentence as though it had been passed upon himself. I don't understand my feelings. <laughs> mm. um, and so it comes to the day of the execution. And um, the, yeah, there's some interesting stuff. The, the servant um, of the Queen Dowager um, actually decides she, she gets some poison. Oh. And she decides that if... if the Chevalier is going to die because she knows what's going on. She um, goes, she poisons the the queen and she's going to poison herself. If he dies, essentially, she decides we're going to. Complicated. Um, The poison doesn't work quite properly, though, she finds. So the queen is fine at the execution. She's like, what's going on? And so um, they came, uh, they bring him out and, um, what is it? They came to lead the Chevalier from the prison in which they had placed him and where he had been living without a single person in the world to speak to. He was therefore ignorant of what crime the Queen had accused him and merely imagined it some new persecution his indifference to her had brought upon him. And that which distressed him the most was that he believed the King participated with the Princess in her rage against him. Um, The King, on the day of the execution, he shut himself up in his chamber that he might lament unchecked the fate of his own beloved favourite. When they had tied Fortuné to the stake, they tore off his robe and his vest to pierce his heart. But what was the astonishment of this numerous assembly when they uncovered the alabaster bosom of Belle-Belle? Everybody saw it was an innocent girl unjustly accused. I mean, like, you know. But the queen was so agitated and confused at such a sight that the poison began to take extraordinary effect. <laughs> she fell into long convulsions, from which she only recovered to utter ag- agonising lamentations. The people who loved Fortune had already given her her liberty. They ran to announce this wonderful news to the king, who abandoned himself to the deepest who had abandoned himself to the deepest grief. Joy now took the place of sorrow. He ran into the square and was delighted to perceive Fortune's transformation. <laughs> he resolved to marry Belle Belle to repay her for the great obligations he was under to her and declared his intentions to her. It is easy to believe that she um, she was at the height of her sorry, it is easy to believe she was at the height of her wishes, not so much for the sake of the crown as for the sake of so worthy a monarch and one for whom she had long entertained the greatest affection. It's, it seems nice that they do have kind of a nice relationship yeah. in this and there isn't 
Because that yeah. is, in, in these fairy tales, that is one of the main sort of themes that recurs again and again. Choosing a marriage. Yes. Like a marriage for love, a marriage with someone you actually get on with. Mm-hmm. Which was sort of them complaining a lot of time about their own arranged marriages. Yes, because even with... Often did not work out very well. Baroness Stolnoy, like, yeah. very interesting backstory, worth mm. looking into, in that she was married off very young. Mm. And she had been sent off to... A Oh, sorry. Dogs. I think she she was always seen as she was going to be the heiress of the family, um, but uh, a boy was born when she was eleven, uh-huh. and um, she sort of she'd been living with her grandmother, and um, then she, she, you know she had an aunt I think who was quite you know a wit a conversationalist, mm. and I don't think her mother particularly had a good relationship with her, but her father was quite fond mm. of her because um, the Baroness she she inherited that wit, mm. and um, she was sent off to a nunnery eventually, and was not best pleased well there was a mm. thing that if a woman was even suspected of having a, a dalliance with another man who wasn't her husband she could be sent to an under for two years oh my god which was just yeah whereas yeah, men were that. publicly flaunting their mistresses all over the place yes yeah like king louis had so many mis- royal mistresses they would say so yeah. yeah but for women not the same mm. but yeah a couple things about that story um that just struck me when i was listening the theme of choosing your marriage huge in these fairy tales because it was yeah. a really big important thing for them like, and even the fact that they kind of got to know each other yeah, in some way that they it was a love match mm. and that you know it, she had agency in it and that mm. she wanted to marry him as much as he wanted to marry her yeah uh, but also the the thing with the fairy coming in at the beginning the fairy in disguise is a huge trope you find in these french fairy tales yeah. it's all over the place and they also use the because we're sort of known that you know fairies they work on different laws, so they they sort of use this idea of the good fairy, or the fairy queen passing judgment, as a way to explain, well, that's just how fairies do things, and to sort of create these societies where laws worked slightly differently. Yeah. And well, she's a fairy, of course, she has more power and agency. Hmm. But it's interesting to go. Well, look, things can be different. Yeah. And still work out quite reasonably. Yeah. Uh, another thing that it just reminded me of other stories, like when you meet. When she meets the guy with the uh, the seven brothers, not the seven brothers, the seven men with the unique talents. Yeah. There's a story about Finn McCool. Oh. How he, he got his dog Bran, where mm-hmm. he's just wandering off. And he happens to meet seven brothers who all have a very, very particular talent. <laughs> like one of them, his talent is, he's got a really strong grip. Once he's holding on to something, he'll never let go. Another has one which is, um, he's good at throwing stones. In fact, so good that if he throws a stone where the stone lands, a wall will rise out of the ground. Yeah, well, that would show up handy. And it's just that they're tailored for something yeah, that's going to happen. they're precisely tailored mm. for plot moments. They can be fun, though, in the... Like, speaking of the Avengers mm. thing. I mean, like, look, I don't... I've seen the Avengers films, but I, I don't... I've never really I, sort I of studied. Um, but I suppose it's that thing of having... Avengers, I'm going to use this as a very loose example. I don't think, I don't know whether this is how it works, but if you have um, an assembly of people who have superpowers of some kind or special skills that are very different, it's interesting that how if one of them is lost somehow or removed from the group, then it doesn't function as a whole. It's like any heist movie. You know, you you get your team together, Mm -hmm. but you need every member of that team. Every link in the chain is as important. Yes. If you lose one link, everything falls apart. Yep. Uh, another story it reminded me of was um, when the queen accuses him of attacking her. There's an Irish story about a king who, um, he, he's married a young woman and she's thinking, you're quite old, but your son is quite hot. 
<laughs> so she tries the same thing. She tries to seduce him, and when he says no, she sort of start, takes her comb out of her hair and scratches herself all over. And says, "Look what your son did to me!" Oh. But also in the Old Testament, Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, when he is sold to, as a slave to Egypt, and I'm remembering this largely based on the musical, <laughs> um, he's working for Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife was um, well. She she liked the look of this 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 young young man, and mm-hmm. tried seducing him. And when he said no, she's like, "Right, well." Yunk, I've grabbed your loincot. I'm now grabbing, calling all the guards to come in. Look, he, he came in here and he's stripped. He was trying to have his way with me, but you guys came. Well, he, he left his underwear behind. So it's a theme. It is of, a recurring one when yeah. it comes to women. And it's like, I don't know how I, I don't feel like, about I, I don't it. like it as, I don't like because it, it being such a percolated theme, mm. sort of almost primes you to dismiss these stories as well. She's making yes. it up. Yeah, because it's so... Well, it's, I feel like I've encountered this a lot more than... No, I don't know if I can say that. Stories where it does actually happen. Because I suppose it's, it's more PC or something when it's a sort of an attempt. Like, it, not an attempt, it's sort of like a, a, a false mm. accusation. Whereas if it's something that did actually happen in the story, like, that's yeah. quite a serious issue. But oh, we wouldn't really have yeah. that in the story. But yeah. it's totally fine to have someone accusing someone of it. Oh, so yeah. there's a bit of a But it's, it's much more damaging to have stories... Yeah, about, because there are so compared, there are so few false accusations compared to the amount of real accusations. Yeah, but every time a false accusation gets airtime, it makes it all the more difficult for someone coming forward with a real one yes. to be believed. Yeah, because the statistic. I mean, right. specifically in Ireland, um, I did see some recently that, like, yeah, when that it it is that there is <laughs> like when it comes to false accusations, they are they like barely any so you know and um i mean that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen and i'm sure you know there, there have been people who have you know that for, for whom that has been incredibly damaging but the problem is that it's so insidious um yeah. when we come across those yeah particularly because they get so much airtime yeah um yeah. and it is it affects us and how we perceive things in a way that we don't necessarily even think about we're not so aware of yeah. um and it's it's weird even myself i know like i would consider myself as being quite you know, quite left-leaning and open-minded and I don't know, socialist, apparently. I don't know, that's what I get a lot. But um, even for me, I, I definitely I frequently find myself having to check my privilege and having to reassess things where I'm getting a, a reaction to something. So you're going, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Simply because that's what mm. I've been bombarded yeah. with. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this last story I want to um, compare it to. A while ago on the podcast, we were discussing um, gender non-conforming fairy tales mm-hmm. and the Romanian fairy tale about the oh. the king who started out as a princess. Has a very similar. It's I can't remember anyone's name, I remember, but um, yeah. there's a there's a small kingdom and there's a big emperor coming in, and the the king has three daughters, and they try in succession to dress up as a knight and go out and mm. fight, and it's the third who does it on the old war horse and goes through mad adventures. Yeah. But at the end, um, they are stealing... They've been sent the task to steal water from a special well and the person guarding the well curses them that if they were born a woman, they will now be seen as a man and if they were seen as a, born a man, they will be seen as a woman. So basically, they um, the, the curse oh. turns into a um, gender confirmation. Interesting. Oh, I don't think I don't think I was here for that one. All right. Yeah, it's um, it's our gender non-conforming tales. Yes, I'm sorry. And again, to anyone who goes back and listen. <coughs> Bunbury, would you shush? Hey, come here. Oh, You're barking at a reflection. Sorry, <laughs> the dog is barking at a reflection. In that tale, in that episode, I apologize. I 
don't always use the best language. I try to, but I'm, I'm still learning. So I apologize when I use the wrong term. Oh, sorry. I just, I just want to apologize. Of course. <laughs> Take your time to do that. Um, yeah, no, because it is, I mean, again, this, and I come from a place of privilege when saying this, that it is, like, it, it's, it's something that we all do need to, like, take a bit of time to actually, mm. like, go over. And, like, I heard someone recently um, say that they, like, it's exhausting for them that they frequently find people come up to them to ask them to explain something for advice on like yeah. how should I treat trans people and this like people yeah and this person was sort of going or they, they sort of asked them to enlighten them you know and to give them like a guidebook and it's like have that is Googled? not their responsibility have you tried Google first yeah because I find generally Google first and, and then try asking yeah because I'm like on Google. I don't know if this is the best parallel to draw but like can you imagine if someone kept going up to you and was like you like you have long hair explain that and how i should behave around you and everything that, that into you know it's just yeah yeah it's just yeah so um yeah we're all learning um so we'll keep trying and please do feel free to send us suggestions and corrections because um like i'm sorry that you have to is the thing um yeah. but um yeah, Squire is up here. I, I think he's sending everyone cuddles. Oh, nice. <laughs> hey, buddy. Another thing I did find interesting about, especially the love triangle in that, not to mm. harp on about the story too much because it was a long one. God knows how long that went on for. It's a great story. It's fast and there's so much more in it. Yeah. I wanted to read the whole yeah. thing, but there was no way that was going to happen. Yeah, I think I just wrote down like in scribble notes. It's like the, 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 what is it, the princess, the, the queen, dowager queen. The way that she was, she was really enamored by Fortune's sort of glamour and splendor mm. and grace and charm. Whereas when it came to the king, the king he was more enamored by Fortune's sort of manner and bravery and intelligence. And yeah. I feel like I really, what I really appreciated about, like usually when it comes, to, I get so frustrated mm. with the, and you found your prince and you're going to marry him even though you've only known him for a day. Yeah. I'm sorry, Frozen's great, just yeah. <laughs> um, in some ways, but with them it, it's that you know when it came they to the ending they did get to know each other and it was built on a relationship of respect yes was the big thing I found huge thing yeah I think I also found again I keep saying I think I found interesting I think that <laughs> there should be like a drinking game take a shot anything times Emily says what's interesting <laughs> at the time this was written Louis the Fourteenth was in reign his brother Philippe was openly having male lovers oh yeah like um, again because terminology we have today versus terminology we have now mm. sorry or terminology then, we had yeah. then um i don't know if he would have identified as gay as bisexual as pansexual as possibly even gender queer because he did often go to masked balls dressed in in a fabulous gown and wonderful like, there's a i've only seen the first series of it but there's a, a tv series i think it's french canadian mm. versailles all about sort of the building of Versailles and all the oh. scandals that are going on. But Philippe has a huge role in it. And there's a lot about the relationship between him, his lover and his wife, oh. who had this very complicated mm. triangle going on. And also the fact that Philippe's wife had been the lover of his brother. And that sounds very Game of Thrones. Yeah. It, oh, God. The, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the court of Versailles so, and the affair of the poisons. <laughs> oh god why has no one made a tv series about the, the affair of the poisons yet it's got everything it's got sex black magic political plots this is fabulous I, costumes i heard basically totally off topic Do um it. 
Louis XIV had a lot of royal mistresses, and like he'd have his official mistress, and then the extra mistress, and then the, just the, the woman I'm having a thing with. <laughs> he had a lot of them. He he. And but the thing is, he liked women both for sex, but he also liked women for like companionship and conversation, mm. and he liked intelligent women. Uh, but there was a huge thing of because if you became the royal mistress, you basically had the ear of the king, so you were in a really powerful position. In some ways, more powerful than the queen because the queen had to be perceived a certain way yeah. and had certain alliances whereas if you were the royal mistress you wouldn't but there was then this whole etiquette of the court thing going on but anyway sorry long preamble uh, there was at the time um, a number of people getting interested in fortune telling mm. and love potions and also if the love potion doesn't work maybe I could poison someone oh boy <laughs> and there was this whole trials being discovering this sort of secret network of basically people and their lovers going well you know if that person died we'd inherit the fortune and we'd be able to be together so um let's just help them along the way yikes one of louis's mistresses or former mistresses felt she was being she was falling out of favor and there's another younger woman coming in and she didn't Mm -hmm. like this so she decided she was going to resort to this and uh make sure the king fell in love with her again his mistress died and if he didn't fall in love with her she'd poison him and there was this whole thing of and basically when it was uncovered by like louis chief investigator chief police it was deemed so scandalous Mm. they couldn't bring them to trial because it would have exposed this whole underbelly of what was going on at the very top echelons of society that they were performing these black masses to try to get the devil to sway the king and there was one bit where they tried to poison someone by putting powder in their shoes (laughs) but they're wearing socks anyway the affair of the poisoner amazing dear god what was going on in france at the time moment affair of the point i'm writing everything down today (laughs) anyone uh, wanted to make like a huge hbo epic oh yeah with with a massive costume budget look at that because and then get Emily involved in your costume. Be great at that. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. Wonderful. But yeah, just back to the thing that um, at the top, uh, mm. Philippe was very open about his relationships with um, with men and women. Mm. So it was interesting that then in this fairy tale, there is the king and the assumed man, and there's a ah, because she doesn't yeah. really yeah. yeah. It's interesting that she she talks or she writes mm. so much about the dialogue between. The Dowager Queen and mm. Belle Belle. Or... Not much about Philippe. Not but also, at all. Philippe was a war hero. Oh. Yeah, he like, went really interesting character, but he went on sort of huge campaigns and won mm. loads of glory for France. Wonderful. I love that he yeah. could do that and still rock a ball game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I need to look him up. Oh, yeah. He founded the House of Bourbon. The House of Bourbon. Uh, like the biscuits. <gasps> He's my favourite. <laughs> I love Warbens. <laughs> yeah, fast. Oh my, there's a, there's a lot in the French court. I feel like I would love to actually look into this stuff more because it was very tip oh, of the iceberg. It's so... I don't know if it was just that the French court were doing it in a more fabulous way or mm. if other courts at the time were like this, but wow, just the amount so of complex. layers upon layers, webs within webs. Mm. Yeah, and then the fairy tales that came out of this. That's where it's intriguing, because, yeah, I mean, even from this, I mean, there's, because, again, I tried to give you a very condensed version. Mm. There's a huge amount more in that. But you can see how over sort of the telling and the retelling, they're Mm. adding in episodes and adding in bits. And And developing. And developing 
dialogues where you want to express your idea and your theme it's amazing and also just that there's actually so many female characters yeah. because even um floride i think her name is who's the hand servant mm. whatever you call lady in waiting um to the queen like th- there's a lot about her in it as well yeah. and that's yeah that in itself is is intriguing um yet mm. from this this period and this creation of the literary fairy tale and even the mm. term fairy tale the most well known of these writers was charles perrault Yes. Am I saying his name right, Perot? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you don't pronounce the T. Who mm-hmm. saw that, like a lot of them, they were writing them down, they were publishing, and he decided he wanted to do this. But even though he's the most famous of them, he actually went in a completely different tack, because while they were elaborating on the tales and making them more mm. intricate and complicated, he stripped them right back down ah. um, and published them as the Mother Goose Tales. And I think I mentioned it before, but he published them under the name of his son. Oh, yeah. Which was a, because... So far, it's mostly been women publishing these stories. Mm. And while they were very well received, were seen as a little bit frivolous because well, the women are doing it. We are members of the Academy. And, mm. and he was quite a well-respected man. He was in his 60s. So he published it under the name of his son, who was quite young, who was just entering society. Because if it was well-received, well, then this was his son's ticket to high society. If oh it went God. badly, well, then oh, he was a young boy. Can't blame him. Smart. But oof, yeah. so, so, so. But the tales, bad. his tales are very interesting because you, you can read them on two levels. You can read them, uh, you can read them as a lovely bedtime story, or you can read them as an adult, as them being quite tongue in cheek. Mm. Interesting. And, and sort of wink, wink, going and over the heads to kids. Yeah, like with kids' stories, like, you know, with Disney and stuff, mm. we often get those two different levels. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating rewatching Disney films as an adult and being like, oh, ho! Yeah. But legacy of these French collectors, uh, most of us, when we think, Fairy tale, fairy tale book, we think Brothers Grimm. Yeah. And there's this sort of, this lovely image of the Brothers Grimm, of them being, you know, the first folklorists, them wandering through the German countryside, collecting these stories directly from, from the mouths of the people, sitting in little cottages while chickens pecked around at their feet <laughs> as, as an old woman told the story while her ruddy-faced grandchildren huddled around her apron. Mm. And that's complete fabrication. <laughs> there's this wonderful painting you'll sometimes see of them done of the two brothers Grimm by their other brother because there were a number of Grimm siblings ah. and one of them was a painter and you know they're sitting in this very rustic cottage while this old woman tells them a story and there's, there's chickens and children and, and all the things completely made up um, the Grimm's there's a number of things I always mix up which one was Wilhelm and which one was yeah, Jacob but one of them Jacob was the eldest and he was the eldest of nine and right. they're their father died, so he became financially responsible for his mother and a lot of siblings. Wow. Um, Wilhelm had very poor health. He was a very sick child. Yeah. He was phys- physically weak and suffered from terrible asthma throughout his life. So they didn't have the time or the stamina to be wandering around the countryside picking up things because they were also trying to, you know, in the academic world, fight against Napoleon coming in and France taking over. So they were gathering these fairy tales partly as a a movement for German nationalism, mm. which didn't have the same connotations it did in their centuries, it did in the next. Oh, yes. Um, very interesting to, to look at the Brothers Grimm stories from a sort of nationalist perspective and this idea of German romanticism. Definitely. But one of their main people they got the stories from, because people sort of came to them with the stories, their, mm. their sisters and their, their future wife went off and brought stories from like servants and things. But one of their main sources was Dorothea. Uh, Viham and in a lot of the Grimm's things there's this front piece of this old woman 
looking like the archetypical mother goose mm. and this sort of this idea of the German grandmother telling the stories. The thing was, though she has been depicted as sort of this German Bavarian peasant or Hanoverian peasant, um, she was a middle class woman of French descent. Yep. yep. <laughs> Her family had come to Germany um, as Huguenots to escape persecution. Mm. And like her husband was a tailor. Her parents had owned a, a quite respectable tavern. And a lot of the stories that she told to the Grimms, she knew from the French tradition. Yeah. Which originated in this literary salon by these women being very cultivated and eloquent. So this idea that the Brothers Grimm have that they were gathering stories that were uniquely German and uniquely natural from the folk they actually a lot of them had their origin or were made more widely known through these very elite very elegant salons yes and it's interesting that's like because you know when it came to the salons in a way that's part of their legacy Mm. but i feel like um yeah actually to Go back to the article because I forgot to give the author's oh, name. Yes. My bad. So Melissa or Melissa, I'm not sure, Ashley. Melissa Ashley in The Guardian. Um, it's interesting. See, when it comes to the, the, their legacy, it's interesting that because um, the, the Brothers Grimm very much looked down on these salon stories mm. and the way that they were written. Um, As being too... Sort of too... Too uh, Baroque because they were, yeah. they were, they are so Baroque. and sort of, you know, they were, they were... They, they, Again, sort of like upper classes sort of thing. And they were aimed at adults. These mm. weren't children's stories. But it's, it's, it's interesting that the, this, uh, the journalist Melissa, Melissa Ashley says, um, but their tales were complex and their morals ambiguous. Their intended audiences were not children, but educated adults. Their stories were long, like novellas, as we learned, mm-hmm. and incorporated character development, dialogue and complicated plots. And they digressed, embroidering an extravagant tapestry of miniature, marvellous detail. And this was, perhaps, their downfall. And so it's interesting, actually, to, to think that those French stories actually then got into the Brother Grimm yeah, stories. Yeah, it's a thing I love because they, a lot of time they would take sort of like the seed from an oral story mm. in quite a simple form. And then they would embellish it, embellish it, embellish it, and it become a literary form. Yeah. And then it would sort of transfer back into the oral and then was collected again again by someone else who wrote it down and turned it into a literary. And it's a sort of this constant cycle cycle and evolution. It's wonderful. But I definitely think, um, yeah, if you have some time and want to read some of these salon stories, would highly recommend. They're like, they're exciting. Um, And considering the time that they came from and also just because... Um, it would be nice not to forget these women because yeah. I had no idea, yeah. none. I grew up with Brothers Grimm, mm. Perot and Hans Christian Andersen, those ones, and I never questioned the fact that they were all men. But like these, these women, these writers, even the people who attended the salons, um, they were an integral part of the they development of that the, part of the They cycle. coined the term fairy tale. They did, yeah. I forgot one of those very important points that yeah. I should have mentioned. <laughs> and yeah, so if you're looking for something to read, read them they're, they're all in public mm-hmm. domain many of them have been translated into english and other languages and then write your own fairy tale yeah uh, get some friends together play a few word games play a salon game or two yes and if you want to know more about the salons and how these stories were created uh, i cannot recommend highly enough from the beast to the blonde by marina warner it's one of my favorite books it's a book i've referenced a lot 
You might think it's one of the only books I've read. It might be one of the only books I've read. I mean, read. it's a very big book looking at it now. It's got lots of pictures. Oh, <gasps> yes. Which is, again, I think I love in sort of academic books when they include pictures. because Just my, take a break. Yeah, my eye gets tired. <laughs> Me too, yeah. And also it, it sort of gives me a sen- more of a sense of... Yeah, like where a, you A are. picture speaks a thousand words. Definitely. But takes less pages. Yes. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, he's, he's the guy to go to for writing about modern fairy tales. Jack Zipes... Fairy tale as myth, myth as fairy tale. Again, a book I love. Also available as an audiobook. <gasps> if, like me, you're not much of a reader, but you do like to ingest a book. I'm going to be looking that up. Yeah. Everyone's getting fairy tale books for Christmas. <laughs> so those are our recommendations. Also, we've announced it on social media, but we can I say it on oh, the podcast. I'm present for this. Yes, yes. Would you like to? Oh, no, I'll get it wrong. <laughs> well, in March, we are going to London. We are. We're going to be taking part in the Waltz Festival. We are indeed. I know. Um, we will be performing on the 1st of March and the 8th of March. Mm-hmm. Information can be found on the Waltz website. Um, there's links to us on Twitter as well. We're bringing our Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde. Again, another source of fairy tales. We should probably... we could Oh, so much we could talk about the Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde. It's a series of podcasts, yeah. <laughs> but we're doing the Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde as a shadow show, but... With something we've never done before. Oscar Wilde himself will be present mm-hmm. as channeled through the wonderful Crystal Bollocks. Crystal Bollocks, um, also, whose alias is Alexandra Crystal. Alexandra Crystal was a former shadow girl. She did some shadow puppets with us. She's a lovely woman. She's Crystal just Bollocks is um, a gender non-conforming drag artist who breaks down ideas of what the F is gender. Yep. <laughs> and has fabulous makeup. Yes. Yes, and they will be channeling Oscar Wilde mm-hmm. with us in vaults. And tickets, are they? Tickets are available. They are available. I wasn't yeah. sure I actually had tickets to Tickets are available. <laughs> look, on, look online. Book your tickets. Yay. Let's go. And there's loads of like really exciting stuff happening oh, yeah. in vault festivals. There's so, so much stuff happening in vaults. And like vaults runs from, I think it runs from like start of February to the end of March. Yeah. It's like, it's gone for a long time, but if you happen to be there um, on the first two Saturdays, because we're only performing on the first and the eighth. Yep. Yeah. Come along and have a look. It's yeah. going to be exciting, guys. Yeah. And if uh, you, you've decided, yes, I'd love to support you guys by buying tickets, but unfortunately I can't be in London on those dates. We also have a Patreon. We do. I always feel a bit cheeky plugging it, but we have a <laughs> Patreon where if you, if you would like to support us in some way, we have a number of tiers. We offer rewards. And it, it really helps us a lot. Yeah, um, particularly when it comes to making the shadow puppets and... Getting the shadow puppets to London. To London. That's a big thing that we've not yeah. done before, so it's going to yeah. be exciting. First time leaving the country. First time leaving Dublin. <gasps> it's going to be like, yeah. oh my God, the shadow puppets have grown up. They're leaving home. I know. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Tales Shadows. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, we are Tales from the Shadows. Because the Shadow Puppet Company is called Tales from the Shadows and the podcast is called Sounds from the Shadows and it made sense at the time. If you actually just put into Google uh, Tales from the Shadows, Shadow Puppetry, Dublin, random few words that you know about us, it does come up. I've tried it. It does. And yep. we, we also have a very lovely website designed by Georgia. Oh, that needs a little bit of fixing up. But yeah, um, we'll be updated soon with our, our vault details. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to go and bake some gingerbread. Yes. Bye, guys.